Hebrews chapter 11. We've been in Hebrews for some time now. We're getting to the famous Hall of Faith in Hebrews chapter 11. This morning I'm going to read verses 1 through 7. Hear now the word of the Lord. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of old received their commendation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. By faith Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. By faith Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now, before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. This is the word of the Lord. Many of you know that as a musician, I've participated in many bands and orchestras in my day. And uh, when I was in high school, there was one that I was in, the York River Orchestra. And I was in high school, mind you. I was the youngest in the room by about 40 years. And many of the other musicians that I loved playing with, um, they had maybe long ago set aside their instrument and we're just now picking it up after years away and relearning how to play and relearning how to read music. And I remember there was one time in particular, there was a gentleman who played a very loud instrument and he was the only one on that instrument. And there was a time that we were working through a piece of music and the conductor stopped us and he looked at that gentleman and he said, yeah, in this, this part, your music tells you you're supposed to diminuendo. I need diminuendo here. And he starts back up and get going. We get to that same part. Conductor stops us. Man, I I didn't hear the diminuendo. I need the diminuendo. Starts up again. Same thing happens. He stops. He says, did you not hear? Are you not going to to do the diminuendo? And the man says, I will be happy to do the diminuendo if only I knew what that meant. (laughs) And for those who are not musicians, diminuendo means you get softer and softer and softer. You get quieter. Okay? He would have been happy to do it if he had any idea what that word meant. And I mention that because there's this word here, this phrase, that we use a lot as Christians. And what I've come to learn in speaking with many, many Christians over the years is that we throw around some words without knowing what they mean. We just get used to hearing them and using them and saying them. Actually, in a a few weeks, we're going to start a new Sunday school series all about that. It's called Words Matter. And we're going to take some of these words like righteousness or church or worship or hope, these words that we use all the time, and sometimes we maybe don't actually think, what does that mean when I say that? And there's one such word or phrase like that 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 we got into last week as we were in Hebrews chapter 10. We saw he said, you have need of endurance. And he's speaking to Christians who are being persecuted for following Christ. And they're ready to give up. And some have already given up. He says, no, you need endurance. And he recalls the prophet Habakkuk, who who witnessing how God was not punishing evildoers. And how God was not rewarding the righteous, but they continued to struggle. 
And the prophet Habakkuk said, God, what are you going to do about this? And in God's reply to Habakkuk, he said, look, that through persecution, God's judgment is still coming. And he will reward the faithful and he will punish his enemies. And this calls for his people to live by faith. And that's a phrase that I think we use a lot. I'm just going to live by faith. I'm just walking by faith right now. And sometimes we grow so accustomed to just letting that phrase roll off of our tongue that I wonder, do we know what it means? Well, what does it mean to live by faith in, the, in your situation right now? Well, I, I don't know. But I'm going to live by faith as soon as I know what it means. In chapter 11, which these chapter markings, these are not in the original scripture. These were added centuries later to help us. But right after the author of Hebrews said in, at the end of chapter 10 that like we are not of those who give up, but we're of those who live by faith and, and preserve their souls. He goes right on to begin describing faith and showing us examples of God's people living by faith so that we might know what it means to live by faith. And that's what we're going to see in our first few verses of chapter 11 today is, is what does it mean to live by faith? And the first thing we see is that faith is responding to God's power. Faith is responding to God's power. Verse 1 is not a definition of faith, it's a description of it. The assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. That's not two separate phrases saying two separate things. It's two parallel phrases that are saying the same thing two times. That's what, that's what Hebrew poetry would do. It would, you know, we rhyme the end sound. Roses are red, violets are blue, sugar is sweet, so are you. We rhyme sounds. Hebrew poetry and Hebrew thought would rhyme ideas. You know, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. The fullness of the Lord, uh, the, the world and the fullness thereof. You know, it, it, we do a parallel that says the same thing two times. And it's great because sometimes one of those phrases makes more sense than the other. And it tells us about the other. And that's exactly what's happening here. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. Things hoped for are things not yet seen. We don't have them yet. Not yet seen. Romans 8 says the same thing. In, hope we are, in this hope we are saved. Hope that is seen is not actual hope. Who hopes for what he already sees? If you have it, you're not hoping for it. Hope is joyfully looking forward to something that God has already promised and living life on, on the belief that what God has promised is going to happen, even if you don't see it yet. We look forward to the things that we don't have. And so faith is the assurance. It's the conviction of what we hope for. Some translations call it the substance of what we hope for. And what it's getting at is this. God calls us to live with an unseen reality in mind. I, I quoted this verse, this same verse last week, but I'm quoting it again because it's so appropriate. In 2 Corinthians 4, we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. The things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Faith takes God's word and says, I'm going to live as if this is true, even if I don't see it right now. I don't see the reality. But my faith is acting as if it's substance, as if it's real. It's acting on the conviction that what God has said will take place. I will live as if God has created me 
and created all things and therefore knows me and knows how to live and knows what is right. I will live as if he is going to judge me for my deeds and as if he is my loving father who has made a way for me to be forgiven. I will live as if he gives me by his spirit the power to overcome sin and addiction and temptation and doubt. I will live as if every sacrifice I make for him will not impoverish me, but will in fact pale in comparison to the reward that he has promised. I don't see those things. I don't have the substance of them yet, but my faith lives as if they are reality. Right now, we don't see virtue rewarded and evil punished consistently. Right now, we don't see the security of our place in the family of God. We don't see them. But in faith, we act as if they are no less real than if we saw them before our very eyes. And we can live and act confidently because of them. The key is that faith doesn't make those things true. Faith is acting on the word that is already true. If you take nothing else away from this, hear that again. Faith doesn't make God's word true. Faith is acting on the word that is already true. You know, I shared this, this story before, I don't even know how long ago, but it, it helps me understand that distinction, and it's such an important distinction that I'm going to share again. It's, it, there's two movies that talk about faith in this way. One of them presents, uh, I think, a true version of faith, and one a very false version of faith. The false one is from, there's a kid's movie, a, a Pixar animated movie called Onward, where there's two brothers, and they're in a situation where they're trying to go across a, a great canyon, and they've got to get across it, and they're told that, hey, there's this bridge that you can access by magic if you just believe hard enough. And with every step, you have to believe with your whole heart. And as long as you believe with your whole heart, you're going to walk across this bridge in thin air. And you see one of the characters trying to do it, and he's believing, he's believing, and then he stops believing for a second, and he starts to fall, but then he believes again, and he's back up. And many people hear us talk about faith and we think that's what faith is. I just have to believe with all my heart and it will come true. And that's not a, anywhere near a biblical idea of faith. In fact, that is not gospel. That's bad news. Because if it all comes down to how hard you or I believe in something, we're in trouble. Am I believing enough? No. No. It's not that. It's more like another movie that presents the same scenario where the hero, Indiana Jones, has to cross a large canyon and he's told that you have to take a step of faith from the mouth of the cave to go across this canyon. And he's looking down and there is, it's just thin air. And because someone he loves is depending on this and he has no other choice, he takes a step into thin air and then immediately the camera pans away and shows you there's a, a bridge, a stone bridge, painted to look just like the opposite wall. So you can't see it. It's camouflaged. The bridge was always there. His faith didn't make it appear out of thin air. His faith didn't make it real. It was there. All his faith did was put him on the word that was promised. Our faith doesn't make God's word real. That's not what it means to say that faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the substance of these things that we believe. Faith doesn't make it real. It's already real. Faith is acting on what's been real all along, which we have by the word of God. And then verse 3 starts to get into that word. 
By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. No one witnessed the creation of the universe firsthand. No one knows how those events unfolded. No one except God himself. In fact, God, when, when Job is complaining about God's justice and complaining about God's lack of involvement and wondering about God's wisdom and justice and how he's handling Job's situation, the Lord responds with these words in Job 38. Where were you, Job, when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me, if you have so much understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. God, it's sarcastic. What? Or who stretched out the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? He's saying, look, only God was there when the world was made. He did not take something that was already in existence and just rearrange it in another shape. He did not enter into a world that already existed and said, all right, I'm in charge now. It wasn't there. God spoke and it was there. And it matters very much whether God spoke the world into existence out of nothing or whether he rearranged what was already there. Abraham, for example, when called to sacrifice his only son Isaac, the one through whom God had promised to bless him, the one through whom God had said, I will make you a great nation. And God said, you need to sacrifice Isaac. Abraham did it because he understood the power, the creative power of the Word of God. Listen to how Paul describes it in Romans 8. Abraham believed that God gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. On the basis of that, Abraham could obey the word of God. God's word, we're being shown here, has the power to make things exist. God is not constrained by the circumstances we face. He doesn't show up and say, oh, wow, what a crazy situation you're in. Let me see what I can do with it. Let me take the materials that you have and see what I can do with it. The messed up life, the horrible choices, whatever it is. Let me see what I can do with this, these materials, like me trying to make a craft with what my little kids will bring to me. I can't make anything beautiful out of that. I don't have the power. That's not how God is. God is the one who speaks things into existence. He has the power to shape and to create reality, and even to change human hearts. You know, Paul taps on this in 2 Corinthians 4. He said, God, the same God who said, let there be light, let light shine out of darkness. He's done the same thing in our hearts. He, he called light into existence, light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. God has the power to change reality and even human hearts. That is the power of his word. And every word of the Lord is true. Therefore, we can be confident what God says because they are the words of the one who has unlimited power. Others can make promises to us. Others can make predictions. But only God's word is fully reliable because it is the word of the one who created and controls all things. Faith responds to that power. Faith is hearing the word of God and saying whatever he says will be true because it's the word of the one 
who spoke all things into existence, faith responds to the power of God. Which means, doesn't it, that everything will go well for us. Right? Please? You know, if God has all the power, doesn't that mean everything's going to be great for me? That I will not suffer? I will not endure sorrow? I will not have broken relationships? I will not have pain? I will not have fear? No, it doesn't. And the author of Hebrews, moving on from the creation account, looks at two interesting figures in the early chapters of the Bible to show us that not only is faith responding to God's power, but faith is also resigning ourselves to God's purpose. Faith is resigned to God's purpose. First, he speaks of Abel in chapter 4. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous. God commending him by accepting his gifts. If you remember the story, Cain and Abel, the first two sons of Adam and Eve, um, both bring an offering, a sacrifice to God. Uh, Cain brings some fruit of the land as he's been tending the land. Abel brings uh, the good portion of, of one of the lambs or animals that he tends because he's, he tends animals. And God, for reasons that are not explained in Genesis, God accepts the offering that Abel brings and not the one that Cain brings. Cain responds in despair and in anger and, uh, and ends up murdering his brother, Abel. They both made an offering to God. God only accepts one of them. Regardless of the reason, Abel acted in faith. And look what happened to him when he acted in faith. Verse 4. Through his faith, he died. Though he died, he still speaks. But don't forget the fact, acting in faith, Abel died. And not a great death either. The first murder. Abel acted in faith and died. His death being kind of a prototype of the way that the righteous fall at the hands of the wicked and foretelling of the innocent one, Jesus Christ, who would live to please God and yet die at the hands of evil men. And so Abel still speaks to us to warn us that living by faith, though it makes us acceptable to God, makes us unacceptable in the world. That's the outcome of living by faith for Abel. Now let's look at Enoch. In verse 5, By faith Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. And he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. Enoch as a figure in Scripture is a bit of a mystery. A lot of the writers after the New Old Testament time were obsessed with Enoch and trying to figure him out because this is all we get about him in Genesis 5.24. Enoch walked with God and he was not, for God took him. That's it. That's, that's the story of Enoch. I mean, right before that, we hear how old he was when he had his son, and then, and then he, he is not anymore, because God takes him. It says Enoch walked with God. To walk with God is a, or to walk with anyone is a biblical image that describes being on the same page. That's how we'd say it today. Are you on the same page with me? You know, to walk with somebody is to, to go the same direction as them, to go the same pace, to have the same goal, to be on the same path as them. Who you walk with is very important. Are you walking with evil people or are you walking with good people? And said Enoch walked with God. He lived in a way that pleased God. He was on the same path as God. And then he's gone. God takes him away. 
in the, uh, the church I grew up in, there was a lady in that church who would, I heard her on more than one occasion describe it this way. You know, Enoch and God, it said Enoch walked with God. I think that Enoch and God just kept walking and walking and one day God said, hey man, we're closer to my house than we are to yours. Why don't you just come home with me? Never forgotten that. But, but the point is, Enoch lived by faith. And what happened to him? He is even spared death. God took him. So you have Abel who lives by faith, walks by faith, and is murdered for it. And then you have Enoch who walked by faith and never dies. They both live by faith, and yet the outcomes of their lives were very different. Faith resigns itself to God's purpose. It says, just as Jesus did, not my will be done, but your will be done. Faith is not saying to God, I'm going to follow you as long as I like where we're going. Okay, that's not how faith works. Faith means you, you respect God's purposes. Whatever that means for us. You know, as Proverbs 3 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will make straight your paths. But we lean on our own understanding to know how to walk a straight path, don't we? We know what our family is supposed to look like. We know what our health should be like. We know what our career or our budget should look like. We look to Romans 8.28 and insist that it promises us that everything's got to be good. Those who, for those who love God, all things work together for good. Which is absolutely true. But Abel loved God. And, and how did that work out for him? For that matter, so did Job. Job absolutely loved God. Jesus, without a doubt, loved God. And how did things work together for them? For good, yes, but good as God understands it. Not always as we understand it in the moment of how things are working out. Since I've already gotten us on the topic of movies, I... In for a penny, in for a pound. I'm going to go to the Karate Kid right now. If you've ever watched the 1980s original Karate Kid, you've got Daniel, who's a teenager, being bullied, and he just wants to learn how to defend and protect himself. And he meets the, the local handyman, Mr. Miyagi, who agrees to teach him karate. And so Daniel shows up for his first lesson, and Mr. Miyagi gives him wax and a rag and points him to a row of cars in the, in the yard. Wax on, wax off, wax on, wax off. Daniel's like, okay, so when are we going to do the wax on, wax off? And he spends the whole rest of the day and late into the night, wax on, wax off. And when he, when he starts doing it wrong, Mr. Miyagi comes in to make sure, wax on, wax off. Shows up for another day of, of karate lessons. Mr. Miyagi takes him out to sand the wall. Up, down, up, down, up, hours, up, down. He starts doing it wrong. No, 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 up, down, up, correcting him. And Daniel's starting to think, okay, this is not what I signed up for. I'm not learning what I need. I'm not going to be able to protect myself. I'm just as vulnerable as I was when it started. He eventually decides to quit. And he goes to Mr. Miyagi and he confronts him. He's like, you're not teaching me karate. You're just making me do your dirty work. And he says, okay, show me wax on. He's like, what? He's like, show me wax on. So Daniel starts to do the motion. And as soon as he does, Mr. Miyagi comes in with a chop. And the wax on motion deflects the chop. 
And then he has him do the other motion. Oh, look, it's blocking another child. He'd been training him all along, teaching his muscles to do the things they needed to do because Mr. Miyagi had a purpose in mind that Daniel didn't understand. And though it didn't match with what Daniel's idea of a good purpose would be, in the end, it got him where he was supposed to be. Likewise, we do the same thing. We look at Romans 8.28 saying, all things work together for good, but we don't keep reading. It's for those who love God and who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He predestined to be what? To be conformed to the image of His Son. God has a purpose in mind for you. And whether it's a path more like Abel's or more like Enoch's, you have to say in faith, I resign myself to God's purposes in this situation. Because I believe, I respond to the power of God that His purposes are good and that He's conforming me to the image of Christ. But I have to let myself go with His purposes and not my own. I have to lean not on my own understanding and let Him make straight my paths. But thankfully, that's not the end of it. Though God would be well within His rights to say, I'm the potter, you're the clay. You have no basis to complain about what I do with your life. I'm shaping you into what I want. You need to be quiet. In fact, he says almost exactly that in Scripture several times. But that's not where it ends. Because the faith that is resigned to God's purpose is in the end rewarded by God's pleasure. Verse 2, by faith the people of old received their commendation. He's setting up the rest of the chapter, which is going through the men and women of God and in the history of God's people up to that day, who exercised faith and who were commended by God. They are those who heard the words that we all hope to hear from Matthew 25. Well done. Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. I like that phrase, and it's worth pausing to think about. Enter into the joy of your master. The real joy of heaven. And we talked about this in my community group uh, last Sunday. Because um, the, you know, the questions were leading us to talk about the reward that we expect, how God has promised a greater reward than anything we experience on earth. And one of the members of our community group pointed out that like, the, the real reward is not, it's not wealth. We're not talking about gold here. Gold is pavement. Like we're not hoarding wealth and anticipating a rich pile of treasures in the afterlife. The real joy of heaven is experiencing the joy of our heavenly Father. The pleasure of God. The, the unbroken and untainted happiness of God. We get to experience that and share that with Him. You, have you ever experienced secondhand happiness? You know, where somebody else gets really excited and you're just like happy with them because their, their excitement kind of overflows into you. You know, you ever like been around a kid that's just like going bonkers because they can't believe they're getting to do what they're getting to do and they're just so excited. And you're just like, I'm just, I'm just going to laugh with you because this is so fun. Imagine the joy of God overflowing to his people. That's the reward and joy of heaven is the pleasure of God. And our only hope of experiencing that is if we live according to faith. Verse 6, without faith, it's impossible to please God. Impossible. Which means that no matter what you do, no matter how good and moral and right you are, 
No matter how hard of a worker or nice of a neighbor or how generous of a giver, you can volunteer, serve, sing, lead, sacrifice. But if you are acting and doing those things on the basis of your own ideas or your culture's ideas, if you're doing what just makes sense or what's culturally acceptable rather than responding to what God has called you to do, then you're not right. You're not pleasing God for that. If you're doing it to please other people, to satisfy your spouse, your parents, your neighbor, you're not doing it in a way that pleases God. In fact, we're warned in Romans 14 that whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Our best behavior becomes unholy if we're doing it rather than in response to God's command, if we're doing it out of any other motivation. Isaiah 64, the prophet mourns saying all of our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment, something you just throw out because it's too messy. You know, if our righteous deeds are that bad, how much worse are sinful deeds? The one who lives by faith is not living for man's approval or reward, but instead for God's reward. Verse 6, whoever would draw near to God must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who seek Him. Rather than seeking the praise of others, oh, look how spiritual she is. Look how much of his Bible he knows. Look how faithful they are to worship. Look how involved they are. Do you know how much they've been giving? That's not living for God's reward. That's living for man's reward. To live for God's reward, we may have to give up on some of the things that we think will make us happy. Or things that we assume God will approve of. Because, hey, if we hate somebody, wouldn't God hate them? If we think something's okay, wouldn't God think it's okay? To experience God's pleasure, we have to sometimes let go of other things that we think will make us happy. Like Noah. Verse 7, By faith Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, and there again, that's that faith responding to God's power, responding to the unseen reality, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Look what Noah did. He heard the word of God. And hearing a word of coming judgment and nonsensical salvation, like a way of salvation that made no sense to anybody, he, he turned his back on what the world had to offer. He turned his back on any other source of happiness condemning the world and instead sought to take advantage of God's promise of salvation for himself and his family. And in doing that, he received, became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Righteousness that's not about being the best person around, being good enough, being holy enough, but righteousness that trusts God power, God's power and therefore receives his pleasure. Righteousness that is given by God. You did the right thing. You did the right thing and you are saved. Living by faith means responding to God's power. It means that all He has said we will do. Living by faith means resigning to God's purposes, that His plans for us are good and right, whatever they look like. Living by faith means being rewarded by God's pleasure, not finding satisfaction in the world that we have to condemn and leave behind, but seek instead to experience the joy and approval of God. 
Honestly, brothers and sisters, those are big gambles that we make. If we're wrong, we've wasted our lives. Paul says as much. He says, if Christ is not risen from the dead, we are of all people the most to be pitied. If, if, if we are basing this on something not solid. And so God seeks to assure his people over and over again that what we're doing here in faith, we're not wishing on a star. We're not putting our faith in something made up or imagined by creative or philosophical minds something very real. One of the things we remember as we approach the Lord's Supper, as we do this morning, is that our faith is not in ideas. Our faith is in something very real. Our faith is in the life and death of Jesus. The Lord's Supper reminds us of that as often as we receive it. That our faith is based on something solid, tangible, concrete, the body and blood of Jesus Christ. Like Abel, he suffered an unjust and violent death and his blood still speaks to us today. Like Enoch, he walked in a way that was pleasing to God, and death could not hold him. Like Noah, he hears and creates a refuge from the judgment of God so that all who are in his household will endure the day of judgment. And he is that word of God at creation, calling things into existence that were not, making his will known and making it happen. This is not fiction, this is not legend. This is not imagination. This is your very real Savior, Jesus Christ, who took on human flesh as we remember here this morning, who walked the earth, who surrendered his life, who rose again, and who reigns forever. And as often as we eat and drink from this table, we declare his incarnation. We declare his life. We declare his death. We declare his resurrection, and we declare his imminent return to judge and to deliver. That is the basis of living by faith. The reality that faith springs out of, that looks to the bridge that it steps out on, that's been there all along, is that Jesus lived and died and rose again and will come again. Respond to the power of God in that. Resign yourself to the purposes of God in that and receive your reward in the pleasures of God for that. Let's prepare our hearts to receive the Lord's Supper in prayer right now. Heavenly Father, thank you that you have not called us to live in ignorance. You've not called us to seek about on our own to figure out your will and your ways. But you have graciously revealed your salvation to us and told us how to live in response to the salvation that you have graciously, freely given. We pray this morning that our hearts, being led by your Spirit, made able, made powerful by you dwelling within us, would be made able to live by faith until the day that faith is made sight. We pray this in our Savior's name. Amen.